Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Great to have you here. We are our, kind of in our last uh, Bible story of the summer. Next Sunday, we will start what I believe uh, is going to be um, one of the most important uh, sermon series that I know I've ever done or we've ever talked about in this church. I don't even have a title for it yet because I've gone through about four or five and they just don't seem to do it. So you'll probably be getting a text or an email sometime this week. And I do believe that this fall is just going to be a powerful fall of teaching. Uh, I know because God is, I'm on this journey that I've never been on before where it's not just about all this research and book work. It's a lot of heart work. And I know whenever that happens, it's taking me into an uncomfortable place which is always good because it means it's giving you something fresh and from the heart. Amen? That starts next Sunday. But for this Sunday, we're going to do another Bible story. So if you have a Bible, turn it to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. That's a kind of a hard book to find. It's somewhat right in the middle of the Bible, but all Bibles have a table of contents on your phone. You can do a search, or if you didn't bring either of those, we will have it nice and bright on the screen. By the way, we, so we had a light go out the church see it over there it's all dark and we were gonna we were gonna fix it but then the word of the lord came and said whoever chooses the darkness over the light we're gonna pray exorcism over them right here in the service so this crew over here they love the darkness more than the light so let's just pray. No, I'm just kidding. I'm making all of that up. <laughs> I couldn't get Ken up there in time to switch the light bulb. So anyway, <laughs> I know. Uh, all right. Well, Heavenly Father, after that, <laughs> we ask that you would open our hearts to receive your word. God, that you would feed us and guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Title's called When God Fights. The story of King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20. Don't worry if you've never heard it; you will hear the story of it today. But I want to begin with a different story in Reno and Las Vegas. How many of you have been to Reno and Las Vegas? All right, I've never been to Reno, but I've been to Las Vegas. It is very popular to get married by the king, right? Uh, it is so popular that you probably wouldn't know this or believe this. It is a two billion dollar industry every year to get married by the king. Uh, I was talking to my, my Foursquare leader, my boss, earlier this week, and I was telling him as I was going through this, I was like, hey, you know what? I'm thinking of stepping down. I mean, I can do marriage. I could look like Elvis, don't you think? You know, <laughs> I could tape up the jawline a little, you know, and grow up, but dye the hair, do the sideburns, you know, I could, I could play guitar, you know, and do all that and just, you know, Two billion dollars, come on, you know, somebody's got to make that. No, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. He didn't know I was kidding. So he's like, are you really serious? Are you really thinking about this? I don't know. I'm like, Brian, I'm kidding, you know. But two billion dollars, and yet Elvis weddings have the highest divorce rate in the nation. Obviously, right, you know. Because they are inviting the wrong king to their wedding, right? Jesus is the only king that needs to be at the center of our marriages because when the times get tough, Jesus can actually help you. Amen? Amen. Well, if we go to our next slide here, there was a terrible earthquake 
in Turkey about 23 years ago. On November 12, 1999, a 7.2 magnitude earthquake shook the city, and 42-year-old Sifa Sabashi was in a seven-story building in Duz, Turkey, just before 7 p.m., when the entire building suffered a collapse and, and many of the stories came down. I think, what, only one or two there are even left standing. Now, when all was said and done, nearly a thousand people would lose their lives. But interestingly enough, after only three days, the Turkish authorities gave up on searching for survivors. Their search and rescue teams were called off. They just started removing the rubble, believing that nobody else could still be alive. Ironically, very ironically, an Israeli search and rescue team, a volunteer team, asked permission that while they were removing the rubble, could they continue searching for survivors? And the Turkish government said, fine. Two days later, so this would be day five, Nearly 105 hours later, they found 42-year-old Sifa. How did she survive 105 hours with no food, no water, in nearly 100-degree temperatures? When the building fell, a closet folded in on her, fell with her, and she was shielded in the closet from everything that was coming down around her. And when they finally lifted the closet, they saw her nearly lifeless body there and were able to save her from the rubble five days later. One of the great pictures of that is that she was in her closet of refuge while everything else was falling apart around her. And I think one of the lessons of that story is to make Jesus our closet of refuge when everything else in the world seems to be falling down around us. And that's exactly what brings us to an Old Testament king who, though he did not know the name of Jesus, because Jesus hadn't come yet, he did know Jesus as God the Father. And he was a sincere follower of God when all of a sudden his world came tumbling down. Now, Jehoshaphat, I mean, say that name five times fast, you know, it's, it's quite a name. Uh, many people, they avoid stories like this because preachers can't even say the name, you know. I remember when I was in seminary, we did a, a, a lesson on this guy, and the professor just shortened it to J-Fat, you know. Uh, so he just the whole time, so if I switch between Jehoshaphat and J-Fat, that's the same guy that we're talking about. Uh, it kind of works. But uh, J-Fat was a king of Judah. Now, Judah had had a lot of Bad kings, really. Some good, but a lot of bad ones. And they essentially started worshiping other gods. They became very loose in their morality. Uh, they began to trust in foreign powers more for their protection than God. And eventually, bad things happened. Uh, they suffered military defeat. The temple was raided and uh, stolen of all its gold. The people endured slavery and oppression from time to time. And I guess, I suppose when you're reading the Bible, this kind of makes sense. You think, okay, when people are doing bad, bad things happen, right? And then when they're doing good, 
Good things should happen. This is what computes for us. This is logical. This is the way we think, okay? Hey, look, okay, fine. If you're going to go worship other gods, you're going to do all this and that, then God can lift this protection, and boom, you're vulnerable. Things can happen. But what about when you're following God and bad things happen? This is exactly what happens to Jehoshaphat. He reforms the entire nation. In one of the rare moments of the Bible, the entire nation reforms with him. They say, you know what? We're all going to go back to church. We're all going to get back in Bible study. We're all going to relearn the worship songs. We're all going to attend the feasts. And we're all going to rally to King Jehoshaphat and his spiritual reforms. They all did. One of those rare moments where everything was going great. But then all of a sudden, from the southeast, a surprise attack comes. And three armies are within 40 miles of the royal palace. Now, Israel could probably repel any one of these nations. Possibly two. But not all three. There's no way they could withstand all three. If caught and captured, Jehoshaphat would have either been publicly executed in front of everybody, embarrassingly, I will say, or they would have poked his eyes out and led him around like, a by it, like an animal on a chain as they brought them back to whatever country they're from. And so the stakes are high. Thousands of people could have been killed, crops stolen, children enslaved, the temple destroyed, a city burned to the ground, God's people humiliated. If you go to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 2, the messenger was short and sweet. King, a vast army is coming against you. Now that made it very personal, right? Not just against Judah, <laughs> Not just against Jerusalem, against you, King Jehoshaphat. You're the target. Now, there are moments in life that define us. And these are one of those moments. What will I do when a vast army, it doesn't have to be a literal army, but what will I do when vast opposition comes against me? Because whatever Jehoshaphat decides, it's a decision that he's going to have to learn to live with for the rest of his life. Now, some people think in these situations that they only have four options. Pay up, give up, panic and run, or deny the problem. Pay up, give up, panic and run, or just deny the problem until it's staring you in the face. But with God, there is always one more option, and that option is to trust in Him and in his deliverance. Verse 3 reveals Jehoshaphat's choice, where it says, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. Everything turns on that fact. The story is over the moment that Jehoshaphat says, I'm not going to pay up, I'm not going to give up, I'm not going to tuck tail and run in fear, and I'm not going to deny the problem, but I am going to take it to God. Boom, the story is over. 
Now we're just playing out the sequence. But the victory is already won the moment Jehoshaphat gets before the Lord and says, I'm going to reject those other options, and I choose you to deal with this problem. No one can avoid a moment like this. We all will face crisis from time to time. It might not be a vast army, but it might be an enemy in the form of a coworker, an enemy in the form of a friend, a disease, or a debt collector, a betrayal, a dry season. You just feel like you're going nowhere fast. Confusion, doubts, anger, bitterness, and unforgiveness towards someone. Just so mad at them. Anger, addiction, all these things can feel as powerful as vast armies coming to destroy us. And the story of King Jehoshaphat says there is another option. You don't just have to pay up, give up, tuck tail and run, or deny. There is an option to trust God and give it to Him. His prayer that we're about to read is one of the longest prayers recorded by a king in the Old Testament. It's very heartfelt, but it's also very short and simple, but it gets the job done. Let's read it together. I'll read it and watch it. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God of heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nation? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? And also, are you not our God? who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. He's reminding God, you are most powerful, and remember, we're your friends. And they dwell in it, your people, God, and have built you a sanctuary in your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, swords, judgment, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine... We will, stand before, we will stand before you in this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So now, not only is he saying, God, you're, you're, you're more powerful than anything. Oh, and by the way, you're friends. He's also saying, and God, we just want to remind you what you said when this happened, that we could come before you, and yet you would save us. This is beautiful, by the way. Perfect theology. And so, and now, he says, and now the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let us invade when we came out of the land of Egypt, but had us turn from them and did not destroy them. That's a key point in this, isn't it? God, we could have taken them out generations ago and we wouldn't be facing this. But you said not to. Whose fault is this invasion now? You know, I say, <laughs> tell me, don't tell me you've never done that with God before. God, there's a little bit of your fault here, you know. He says, he says, here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude. Now, what a thing to say. God, we're powerless. That's not a thing a king should say. Maybe a foot soldier, <laughs> maybe a peasant, <laughs> but the king is supposed to toe the party line, right? We're powerful, we're bad, we'll beat everybody. This is big. 
we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Then in verse 13 it says, And now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. This is a really powerful paragraph in the Bible. When we pray, we often look at the externals, right? The form of the prayer, the words, the length of the prayer, right? If you pray longer, you're surely to be far more heard than if you pray for just a few seconds, right? Are we standing or are we sitting? Are our eyes closed or are they open? You know, because if you pray with your eyes open, you're not really praying. You're just looking around. You know? But if you pray with your eyes shut, you are like in heaven and you are praying that, you know. We, we, we really, you know, whether we phrase things the right way. How many of you have prayed a sentence and then rephrased that sentence four or five times just to make sure you got it right? Just to let God know what he's answering for you, right, you know? fact of the matter is God doesn't look at the externals he sees right through all that and goes straight to our hearts is there faith is there sincerity and is there honesty you don't have to know the right words God already knows the right words he's looking at your heart when God listens to prayer he listens to your heart and Jehoshaphat's heart was in the right place. It wasn't a very long prayer, but this prayer would save the nation. It wasn't very complicated, but it got the job done. And of course, the answer wasn't long in coming. Literally, as Jehoshaphat ends, a verified prophet of the Lord steps forward and says, I have the answer. And the answer he gives is this. Beginning in verse 15, he says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle belongs to the Lord. Say that with me. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to God. He says, tomorrow you will march down to meet your enemies. You will take up the battle positions, but stand firm. You will see the salvation of the Lord. Notice he didn't say, hey, you can all go home. Go back to your couches, binge watch a little TV. God's got this. It's not what he says at all. He says, suit up, mount up, polish those boots, grind up those swords, get ready to go, but then stand and watch and see what God's going to do for you. We do our part. God is going to do his part. So the real question on the table is, when a vast army is coming against you, when a crisis hits you, Will you do it in your own strength or will you do it in God's? That's what this story is all about. If you have a discussion sheet, you can go ahead and flip it over. Just three points this morning. And the first one is this. Number one, you don't need to pray alone. You don't need to pray alone. Praying with people, I get this. I mean, I'm used to it now, but I understand the, I understand the feeling. Praying with people can be kind of weird, right? Kind of intimate and vulnerable, you know? Sometimes when people who aren't used to Christianity or church, 
when they come here and I'm like, hey, let's go sit down and pray. They'll look around like in front of everybody, you know. I can tell. There can be some uncomfortability with it. And yes, to some degree, this story says, who cares about your uncomfortability? When you got a crisis coming at you, it's <laughs> pray in front of Bakersfield if you have to, you know. But it gets the job done. We got to get the job done here. <clears throat> Praying alone can feel very safe and under control. But, and there are times, by the way, where the Bible says, Pray alone in your prayer closet so that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. So I'm not saying that we should never pray alone. But there are times when the crisis calls. You've got to call in reinforcements to come and pray for you and pray with you. When you're facing a vast army, don't pray alone. It can be stretching, it can be a step of faith, but God is not calling us to be so prideful that even in prayer we say, I don't need any help. I got this. I only need me and God. That is not the attitude that sees great victories. I can tell you that right now. God says, uh-uh. King Jehoshaphat invited the whole nation to see him and watch him kneel before the Lord and say, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. That's a huge act of humility for that king to make. And God rewarded it where their armies never even had to swing a sword. They didn't even have to clean their uniforms. God annihilated the army right in front of them. The Bible specifies it was everybody, every man, woman, and child, because God really digs unity. It was probably 20 years ago now that Tanya and I, we went to the Foursquare Convention somewhere in America. And uh, <laughs> all convention centers look alike to me. But I remember Jack Hayford was the president of Foursquare at that time. And at that time, Foursquare had made some real public mistakes. And we were getting some flack for it. There was some disunity for it. There were some people wanting to leave the denomination over it. It was bad. And Jack Hayford stood in front of all six or 7,000 of us. And he said, we need to get on our face before the Lord. Jack Hayford, probably the most spiritually powerful, politically powerful, one of the highest men in Foursquare in our history. And he said, I want all of us right now to get on our knees and on our face and repent. And then on stage, he turned around and did it too. And he was no spring chicken at the time. He was probably, he was older. And he got down and he wept before his face before the Lord. And he cried out for forgiveness because our denomination did make some mistakes that they needed to repent of. I always respected him for that. And it was always the image I carry when I think of this story. Another time I was called in, and there was a big decision that one of the men in our church, not this church, it was previous church, had to make. And I had relationship with the family. So they had called me to pray for this man to, for, for guidance in a decision. Guidance in a decision. So I'm driving. I'm thinking this is going to, you know, I'm even calling like, hey, I'll meet you at Taco Bell in a couple hours, you know, in a half hour or so. This will take no time. You know, I'll just go and pray. I mean, you know, 
But when I walk in, the whole family is there. No, I don't mean just like his kids, brothers, sister. I, this whole family had gathered around. I walk in, I'm thinking I just crashed a party. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I'm kind of like, why is all these people here, you know? He goes, oh, we, we invited them all to pray with us on this. I remember scratching my head. People do that? You invite your whole family to pray over a decision you have to make? Wow, I'd never seen that before. And there they are. They're all in this big living room. They're all taking hands. They're all ready to pray. They want me to whip out the oil, slap the guy on the forehead, and get this thing going, you know? <laughs> and I did. And it was wonderful. And I was praying. But the whole time I'm thinking, the whole family is here. If just, I don't know why it freaked me out, but it was just that neat scene of, you know what? This was so important to this man. He wasn't just going to pray it alone or in the privacy with his pastor. He invited his family in. That's how important it was. Point number one, you don't have to pray alone. Point number two, make worship a weapon. Make worship a weapon. Weaponize your worship. In First Chronicles 20 and 21, it says that Jehoshaphat appointed the worship team the worship team, to go before the army singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Can you imagine that sight? Here comes the army of J Judah, right? And this is the old days where it's, right? They're, mar they're marching into battle. Who do you want at the front? Yeah, I can tell you right now, you don't want the choir, you know, <laughs> You want the men with spears. You want your Arnold Schwarzeneggers at the front. You know, you want, I mean, you don't want these guys at the front. And yet this was Jehoshaphat's command. No scouts, no archers, no warriors, no infantry, but the choir. If the singers, if God doesn't come through, this whole worship team is going to be slaughtered. Now, it seemed like nonsense. But when you read the Bible, it makes perfect God sense because military strategists will tell you, even in the ancient times, there was nothing more important than trying to achieve the element of surprise when you're about to go into battle, right? You want to be quiet, sneak into the little crevices, you know, especially if you know you can't win. You've got to tilt the odds in your favor somehow, you know. Position soldiers, dig some holes in the ground, do some things that are clandestine in guerrilla warfare. And if they were relying on themselves, that's probably what they would have done. But because they were relying on God, they wanted the worship song echoing through the canyon as that army came in. There would be no doubt where the people of God were, and they were not scared, and they would not be humiliated that day. when they came down the road singing at the top of their voices and they finally arrived on the battlefield, they found nothing but dead bodies and a defeated enemy. Like I said, they didn't even get their uniforms dirty. This story reminds us that worship is not just something we do one hour a week. It's not just something that is reserved for 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. 
And it's not just music or giving or attending a church. It's the choice to trust and obey God every day of our lives rather than to retreat into the flesh. They worshipped during the crisis and then they worshipped after the crisis. The story goes like this. It took them three days to plunder the army. They had gold, they had money, they had tools. They had, uh, that was a full right. That was a full right that they could do. When they defeated an army, they could plunder everything, take it back. So it took them three days. After three days, on the third day, it says they all gathered in Jerusalem. And what did they do? They had a worship concert that they hadn't heard since the days of Solomon. I mean, they have trumpets, they have lyres, they have crude guitars they got it all going on and millions of people are worshiping the lord worship's not just something we do when we need to get something from god worship is something we do especially after god comes through amen <clears throat> one time uh, had a lady come in and said I am so scared of getting fired from my job. I said, why are you scared of getting fired? She said, well, to be honest with you, I don't even think I'm really good at my job. But you know how you get used to a job and you just don't want to go have, go through, find another one. And she so, was just so scared, you know. And it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know, maybe I was going to youth camp or something, but I was like, you know what, I can't, I can't pray for you now. I'm sorry. I, uh, I'll give you some phone numbers of other people to call, but I can't, I'm not available. I said, but here's one thing I can do for you right now. Go home and put on some worship. Put on some worship music. I checked with her a few weeks later, and I said, hey, how did it go? Did you get fired? She goes, yep. Well, just like that, yep. But she kind of smiled. I said, well, what happened? She goes, you know what? I did what you said, Pastor Tom. I worshiped so much that even as I was getting fired, I had the peace that God had my life in his hands and I had to get another job. Amen? That's, that's the blessed. That's when you weaponize worship, it takes away the fear. Earlier, I was meeting with Bud and Shirley. And no, some of you may not, some of you who have come here recently may not know that shortly before I came here 12 years ago, Shirley came down with West Nile virus. And she was debilitated in the hospital. And a worship leader from our church went there in the hospital, brought his guitar, and just sang worship songs over her for that whole night. Why do I share that? Because 12 years later in a meeting, that's what Shirley remembered was the worship night with the worship leader who came and, and did that with her. I thought it was very key after 9-11. Uh, if, if you remember 9-11, right after that event happened, they had a special session of Congress. And at the end of that special session of Congress, they all gathered on the steps and they began to sing hymns. God bless America. They sang another one. But they were all hymns, hymns to God to deliver us from this enemy. In fact, the following Sunday, President um, Bush went to, <laughs> went to the National Cathedral, and he had asked the pastor, can we not have a sermon today, but can we just make it a full day of hymns and worship and, and, a, and a moment of prayer? He does this make worship a weapon. Make worship a weapon. And finally, number three, 
good things happen when we realize our powerlessness. Good things happen when, oh, there's a typo. Well, that works too. Uh, I'll switch it on the fly here. God things happen when we realize our powerlessness. God things happen when we realize our powerlessness. Jehoshaphat said to God, we have no power against this vast army coming against us. Do you ever felt like that? God, I got no power against this world. I have no power against these fears. I got no power against these addictions. I always feel outnumbered. I always feel outflanked. I'm perpetually harassed by the cares of life, the hindrances, the problems, and the entanglements that just seem so big for me. And it's so easy to have false security. Well, I can take it. I can do it. I'm strong. I can handle this. I got it under control. God helps those who help themselves, right? Jehoshaphat would say, no, God helps those who know they can't help themselves. And they go before God and said, God, there's nothing we can do. Our eyes are on you. I love how that rhymes in English. I don't think, I don't think I, that was just, the, you know, the way it came out. But. And it's not because we're weak when we admit our powerless. It's actually because we're smart. God can see what we cannot see. God can do what we cannot do. And God can fight and win in such a way where there's perfect righteousness, perfect judgment, and a perfect result. Hey, look, I love, to some degree, I love fighting, especially when I think it's right, when I'm right, you know. I love a good fight. But if you were to ask me, Tom, when you fight, do you fight in perfect righteousness? No, I don't. I can say things, and all of a sudden I'm like, can you please go back into my mouth? I can do things, and I'm like, why did I do that? You know, Come on, we all have that. But when God fights, he fights in perfect righteousness. So let God fight your battles as we joyfully and faithfully declare the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Worship team, come on forward. This morning before we close, I think it's very important, two things. First of all, if Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior yet, that's step one. He can ask God for the moon, but all he really cares about first is the eternal destiny of your soul. All these other things on earth are for nothing if we don't get eternal life addressed. And to do that, we just humble ourselves and say, God, before I pray anything else, I'm going to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to receive Jesus as my God for the forgiveness of sins and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I choose Jesus. Then after that, we have every right to say, God, you promised. You promised as I follow Jesus, God, that you would never leave me and you would never forsake me, that you would be right there beside me. And Lord, it feels like I have a vast army coming against me now. Whether it's financial, relational, spiritual, vocational, national, 
mental, emotional, vast army. God, I don't know what to do. So my eyes are on you, for the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's pray this together, and this will just cover everybody. Say, Lord Jesus, I make you my Lord and Savior, and I ask you, forgive me of all my sins and fill me with the Holy Spirit as I follow Jesus the rest of my life. And Lord, for those vast armies of addiction, of abuse, of confusion, doubt, or whatever, I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. For the battle belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.